0: Hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the third chapter, verses 7 through 9. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And may the Lord illuminate our hearts and our minds from this passage this morning. Let's pray. Oh, dear Lord, we come to you on our knees asking for mercy wallowing in your grace, just just delighting in the fact that you are a compassionate and a loving God and you have poured your grace upon us. But dear Lord, we know that there are some who have not turned their lives over to you, some who don't know you have, through your son Jesus Christ, who still hold on to their own feeling of uh, entitlement or their own feeling of self-worth and Lord, we pray as we go through this passage this morning that the true meaning of, of salvation will come out, and, and the reason for the warnings that you give us like this, not, not just to, to shake us up, although it does, but to save us, to save our souls, and we pray that that is what the result will be, souls that are saved from the wrath to come. In Christ's name we pray, amen. It was about a year and a half ago that Kay and I stood on the banks of the Mediterranean in an ancient seaport by the name of Joppa. And we were trying to imagine one of the most amazing stories in all of the scripture that started there at that seaport. And most of you know that that's the beginning, literally, of the story of Jonah. And when I say it's one of the most amazing stories in Scripture, you might think immediately, well, he's talking about Jonah getting swallowed up by a big fish and spending three days there. But I'm, I'm really not, that's not what I'm talking about. That's not the kind of amazement that I want to bring in, uh, to your attention this morning. Jonah was a prophet. He was a man of God. He was a man through whom and to whom God spoke. And the book starts out like this in the second verse. God speaking to Jonah says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. Now, In essence, what God is telling Jonah to do is I want you to go to that hated city where those hated Ninevites who do nothing but oppress you and abuse you. I want you to go and I want you to warn them of the wrath to come. Now, what was so amazing about that is Jonah got in a boat right there at Joppa and took off in the absolute opposite direction. He heads to Tarshish to try to run away from God. The reason being is he didn't want to warn the Ninevites. He wanted them to, to, to face the wrath of God and the judgment of God. He didn't want them to be saved. And so he ran. Well we know what happened, right? God would have none of that. He brought a big storm. They threw Jonah into the to the um, sea. That was his punishment. The, the, the fish was actually his salvation. Three days in the belly of the fish would give anyone an, uh, an attitude adjustment. And it certainly did. Jonah, who finally ended up on his way to Nineveh, exactly where he should have been in the, in the first place. But here's the point. When God speaks to a prophet and says, These are my words. I want you to go and do this. The prophet had best do it. The person who is called or commanded or given the responsibility of bringing the words of God should do so because God is not going to have it any other way. We learn in Jeremiah, God speaking through Jeremiah, puts it in these words. He tells Jeremiah, speak to all the cities of Judah that come to worship in the house of the Lord. All the words that I command you to speak to them, do not hold back a word. In other words, when God speaks, especially when he speaks of impending wrath and impending judgment, he doesn't want those who he has given the calling to share those words to hold a single word back. Now, the whole purpose of starting out my discussion this morning with this passage is, or this story of Jonah, is again to make a point. I've got some harsh words to share with you this morning. I've got some confrontational words, some abrasive words, actually, some downright jolting words. And I am called, I am bound. I am required, I am convicted, I am commanded to share these words with you without sugarcoating them, without watering them down, without trying to move around them, without considering that you might be uncomfortable or your feelings. I am called by God. Now, I'm not a prophet, okay, but I am In a modern sense, one who shares the word of God with you. And the word that we have before us is a straightforward warning of God's wrath and impending judgment. And he tells me that you best not change a word or leave a word out. You should make it as graphically emphasized as the words can be. Because this is just that important. Now, let let me put this in perspective before I go any further because I know you're all bracing Is Oh, my goodness, what are, we gonna, what, what, what are we in for? I believe in all my heart and the essence of my soul. I believe that this is the inspired divine word of God. I believe that it is infallible and Inerrant. And I believe that when God gives us a warning over and over again through the prophets of old, through John the Baptist, through Jesus, through the apostles, from one end of the book to the other, when he gives us a warning of impending judgment, that this is a word that is the absolute, complete, and total truth. I'm not giving you fairy tales this morning. I am telling you something that I believe to be true. Now, what kind of a person would I be? If I honestly believe that what I'm about to share with you is the absolute truth of God, what kind of a person would I be if I sugarcoated it? If I just kind of skirted it? If, if I tried to make it acceptable, if I tried not to step on your toes in the process of doing it, what kind of person would I be if a hurricane is coming and I know that it's coming and you're heading out in a kayak in the ocean? And I didn't warn you and tell you that there's, there's trouble out there. Well, I wouldn't be much of a pastor that's for sure I wouldn't be much of a preacher so therefore I want to share these words for you but with you but I want to make something absolutely positively clear that when Jeremiah spoke these words when John the Baptist spoke these words when Jesus spoke these words when the apostles spoke these words and when I speak them today it is not just a negative warning it is not just something to ruin your day or to drive you away from Christianity it is to save your souls. Your soul is so much more important that whether or not you think I'm a decent person or a good preacher or whether you think I'm your friend or not. What is all important is your salvation and your eternal soul. And unless you know Jesus Christ, John the Baptist is telling you, is that soul is in peril. So with that mild opening... We can turn our attention to the text. Now, for those of you who haven't been here, we are in the book of Luke. We're sort of in a transition. We're turning the page for the first two chapters we've been learning about the nativity, the birth of Christ. And over and over again, we have had affirmation in that part of the book that Jesus is indeed the divine Son of God and He is here for a purpose, for a heavenly purpose. He is the Messiah. But now that Luke is turning from the nativity story to the beginning of Christ's ministry, he's approaching it in the same way. And we talked about this last week. First of all, he's grounding it in history. And then he's grounding it in the Old Testament. And then he's introducing the herald, the one who has been sent before him to announce his arrival. He's dealing with with him first before he gets into the ministry of Jesus. Now, we learned last week that the ministry, the purpose of John the Baptist was kind of twofold. Most important, he is the one who is introducing Jesus of Nazareth as the long awaited Messiah, the Son of God. But he is also here to prepare the people's hearts. We, we, we focused on that phrase last week, that he came proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and how important repentance was and that the baptism was not the Christian baptism, but it was to prepare the hearts for the one who was coming who would save them. And so after establishing that, after establishing that what I'm looking for, John the Baptist speaking, is repentance so that you can be saved and prepared for the one who is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit fire. Then he comes out with these harsh, jolting, abrasive statements. Shake people up to make them think about their own mortality and their own eternity and where they will spend that eternity. And so therefore... It is to save. It is part of the redemptive process. The reason that John the Baptist is saying what he says. So let's dive into it and see. Verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him. Now, we talked about John the Baptist being out in the wilderness, living sort of a hermit's life, coming into the Jordan River, and that's where he's doing his baptism. Now, Luke uses a word for the number of people who are coming out to him. Matthew tells us that all Judea and Jordan River area, the people were coming here. But Luke uses a word that means a large multitude of people. But it is a word that has the connotation of a crowd that does not gather because there's an organized event. It's not like tickets are being sold. Okay, John the Baptist is going to be here on such and such a day, so let's all gather there. No, it's a a spontaneous gathering. It's the kind of crowd that would follow Jesus. and, And they would gather spontaneously without even being asked because they were coming out for a reason to be baptized by John the Baptist. Now, if you were to take Matthew's rendition of this and put it right next to Luke's rendition, you would notice that they're almost identical word for word. Either Luke had Matthew or Matthew had Luke, or they both had the same source that they worked off, which is probably the, the case. But there's a major difference, and the major difference is right here. When Matthew says that the people were coming out, he concentrates on the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. And when John the Baptist has these caustic things to say, he's talking directly to these leaders. John, in his gospel, also talks about the religious leaders. He says the Jews. In fact, the Pharisees were sending out Levites and priests to ask John, who on earth are you and who gave you the right to baptize? But Luke does it a little differently. Luke says the crowds were the ones that John was speaking to. I like the way Calvin sort of looks at this. He says, probably these religious leaders are in the foreground. And that's really got John's dander up. But he's talking beyond them to everyone. And the reason this is significant, brothers and sisters, is because that takes that out of the realm of some men that died 2,000 years ago. That whole audience is gone. The reason the Holy Spirit has preserved these words and placed them in this gospel is so that you will hear them. These are words designed for you. And Luke wants to make that sure. So the crowds were coming out to John the Baptist. They were traveling from all over the place, but I have made that trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's hot, it's sandy, it's rocky, there's nothing that grows, there's mountainous terrain, there's nothing in that area. It's one of the driest deserts of the world. So here these people are coming out all the way to the Jordan River, which is no small hike. They're coming by foot, and when they get there, they are greeted With, you brood of vipers, you sons and daughters of snakes, what would you do? And I've almost done it this morning, but what would you do if you came in here for the first time and I greeted you and I said, you son of a snake? And that was the way that you're addressed. Well, that's the way that John the Baptist is addressing the people who are coming out to him. First of all, he says they're a brood. The underlying word just means offspring, that you're the offspring of. Now, when we talk about a brood, usually we're talking about a large number. When we talk about a woman who's got too many kids, we say she's got a brood, right? And they are all seem to be running in different directions. So it is a word that means a many, a whole bunch of, but there's something that is very significant about the use of this word brood, Because a brood has a common source. A brood all comes from the same parent. They're they're all in the same family. Now when John the Baptist calls the crowd a brood. Well, there are Sadducees and Pharisees. There are priests and Levites. There are men and women. There are tax collectors and soldiers. There is a variety of people in that crowd. But he is giving them all an homogenous Source or parent, we'll find out who that is in a moment. But they're all coming from, they're all united in one family in one way. Well, then he goes on and he says, you brood of vipers. Well, a viper is a snake. And the underlying word in Greek doesn't specify what kind of snake, just a snake. But it carries the connotation of a venomous snake. Snake. The snakes in that area were particularly venomous and, and very dangerous because they're not. You know, you know, when we think of snakes, we think of these big old copperheads or are the big rattlers, uh, the timber rattlers from up in the um, Appalachian Mountains or something like that. These snakes were actually small and and, and very thin, and the problem is that you couldn't even determine. You couldn't tell them from sticks. You remember the story from Acts, from Acts 28, when Paul picked up a bunch of sticks? We read this. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. You see, that's what they'll do. They'll they'll look just like a stick. You pick them up and all of a sudden, boom, there they go. And they chop down on their victims and hold tight. And as they hold tight, they're pumping that venom into them. And their bites almost always resulted in death. That's what John the Baptist was calling these people, you offspring of venomous snakes. So what does he mean by that? Well, obviously, he doesn't mean that they're snakes because they're not. They're people. So obviously, this is symbolic in nature. And I can think of several ways that this would be applied to them. First of all, venom and the venom of snakes is closely associated with sin. Now, we're going to find out later that the people who are coming out were coming out not for repentance. They're actually coming out thinking they're pretty good people. Okay, that they're God's people. They're covenantal people. And John is telling them, no, you're not. You're a bunch of sinners. You're filled with the venom of sin. Paul says, there's none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and fall short. ...of the glory of God. There is a, a venom that is, is in us. In fact, there's a great Old Testament image of this, if you will. Remember when the, in Exodus when the children of Israel were being bitten by all these venomous snakes... ...and Moses holds up a brazen serpent and whoever looks on the serpent... ...they, they, they weren't hurt anymore and nobody could understand what that meant... ...because it sounded like an idol until Jesus came along and said, that's me. I'm the one who's going to hang on that cross... I'm going to be sin, the one who knew no sin. And so therefore, the idea of being a venomous, to be um, that kind of, of a person, is to have a venomous, poisonous lifestyle, to, to have a lifestyle that was full of sin. But, but it goes beyond that, I think, because remember, there's the religious leaders. And both Matthew and John point out that John the Baptist is really railing against these religious leaders who were leading the people like a bunch of venomous snakes, leading them into sinful lifestyles, worshiping in a different way than they should. Paul said this to the Romans though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So on the one hand, the people themselves are infected, if you will. in fact, it's not the right word. They've been bitten by this sin snake, and, and it is permeating in their vessels. And on the other hand, you have these, these snakes that are teaching them falsely. But then there's a third reason. And I think this is the main one. Remember we talked about a brood all coming from the same family. We talk about a brood all having the same parent. Well, who's the snake in scripture? Going all the way back to Genesis 3, it it is Satan. It is evil. He came into the garden as, as a snake. And so when John the Baptist says you are the offspring of a snake, what he's calling him, you're the children of the devil. You are the sons and daughters of Satan. Now, brothers and sisters, that's harsh. That's jolting language to people who think they are God's people. And it is going to be so, so different from later on when he says, you all think you're the sons of Abraham, don't you? But you're not really the sons of Abraham. You're really the sons and daughters of Satan himself. Now, Calvin points out that John the Baptist is... Trying to terrify the people. Unapologetically, un- 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 he is trying to stir up the viper's nest. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier John the Baptist is not trying to be your friend, John the Baptist is not trying to keep from stepping on your toes. John the Baptist is not trying to make you comfortable and happy and friendly today. John the Baptist is interested in your eternal soul being saved. And he knows the danger and the peril of that soul. And so he is calling you to repentance rather than thinking that you're entitled. Which is exactly what everyone is thinking. So he starts out by calling him a brood of vipers. Gets off to a great start. And then he says in the second part of that verse Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, that's a rhetorical question. He, I don't think for a moment he thinks that anyone who is coming out to him has been warned to flee and that they're actually fleeing to him to flee the wrath. No. Actually, the wrath, and there's no doubt who the wrath is, where the wrath is from, it is the wrath of a perfect and a holy God against sinfulness of humanity. That's the wrath. And when he says the wrath to come, that makes it eschatological. That's in the future. And so, we're not only talking about perhaps the wrath that is going to come in 70 AD when Israel ceases to be a nation for centuries, but more than likely, it speaks of eschatological wrath judgment, folks. As we sang earlier, and as I said earlier, we're vapor, we're only here for a blink. We're here for a very short time and either we are going to go to that judgment or it is going to come to us if Jesus comes back before we die. But that is what the Scripture teaches us. And and, and it's a clear warning that should lead to your salvation if you would only listen. If you would only listen. Brothers and sisters, my heart breaks as Jeremiah, as we read earlier, weeps for those who will... Turn me off and not pay attention to any of these words. Well, he speaks of the wrath to come. And obviously, as I said, it's a rhetorical question. I don't think he is saying to anyone who's coming out, okay, someone has warned you to flee that wrath. What he is telling the people is you're all coming out here for the wrong reason. Yes, I'm a phenomenon. Yes, you're the righteous in your own eyes. And now it is favorable in the eyes of the pious for you to come out and get baptized. But you're coming out for the wrong reason. Your hypocritical religiosity doesn't do anything to God. Haven't you heard? The prophets of old. God, when he spoke through Amos and said, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. Don't you realize that your external religion is not what is going to save you? And you have come out here because this is another mark on your belt, another feather in your hat, another thing that you can say, I'm righteous and pious because I've been to John the Baptist to be baptized. And he's saying, who warned you? That that's not the reason for my baptism. The reason for my baptism is that you will repent and recognize that your soul is in peril, and the one who comes is the Savior who will save that periled soul. And if you'll believe in Him, you'll all be changed. If you will only listen. Well, He speaks of that repentance and that need for repentance and the fact that the people, unfortunately, are just coming out for all the wrong reasons. And once again, brothers and sisters, I've just simply got to do this. I wouldn't be a half-decent preacher if I didn't do it and tell you that everyone that John is speaking to is dead. And they've been dead for two millennia. The Holy Spirit did not include these words in this Bible of His, in His revealed Word, in all of the Gospels, because He was talking to a bunch of people who died years ago. He's talking to you. And this is a warning to each and every one of us. There is judgment to come. If there isn't, the Bible's a liar. And if the Bible's a liar, then we don't know God. And if we don't know God, then we're all lost. Well, he goes on in the 8th verse to talk about the kind of repentance and the fruit that needs to be born. Look at the beginning of that. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, notice this. Bear fruit in keeping with with repentance. He's talking about a qualified fruit here. I'm sorry to say this. I know I'm hitting you pretty hard this morning, but the people who were coming out to John the Baptist according to our standards today were squeaky clean. I mean, these are the most pious religious people on earth. I mean, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, especially the Pharisees, they tithed 10% of everything that they owned. They even tithed down to the herbs in their gardens. They stood on the street corners and prayed loud and long. They, They fasted regularly. They never missed a feast day. They sacrificed in the temple. They spent their entire life studying the scriptures. And yet, John says, bear fruit. Well, wait a minute, we're already bearing fruit. We're bearing all kinds of fruit. No, no, no. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, bear the kind of fruit that repentance brings. Bear godly fruit. Bear heavenly fruit. Bear the kind of fruit that comes from the kind of heart that Jesus introduced when he said the first words of his Sermon on the mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the brokenhearted. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who recognize their sinfulness and that they are lost and that their soul is in peril. And turn ye to God rather than to themselves and say, God save me in your mercy. Blessed are they, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the kind of fruit All through Scripture, all through the New Testament, especially Jesus, John the Baptist, Paul, Peter, John, all the apostles talk about the fruit that you bear. Remember what James says in his famous discussion of this in his second chapter? He says, if you truly are saved, if there has been a conversion, if you have repented, then there will be fruit in your life. If there is no fruit, there's no faith. Because a faith that doesn't bear fruit is a dead faith. Paul even takes it farther in the Ephesians. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared the works, the fruit that he wants you to bear. And he wants you to be broken in spirit so that he bears his fruit through you. That's the fruits of repentance. Not the kind of self-righteous, self-aggrandizing, self-dependent, self-focused fruit that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who were coming out were bearing. So, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he shows us that he knows his audience. He knows them oh so well. Notice what he says in the second half of that eight uh, verse. And do not begin to say, do not think for a moment... To yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, they were coming out with the preconception that they were in. Why? Because they are Abraham's children. Because Abraham is our father. Now, pointing back to quite a few statements in the Old Testament. One of them out of Genesis 22. Right after Abraham tries to sacrifice Isaac and God stops him. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And as the sands that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And, and and that's what these Jews who were coming out to John the Baptist. That's what they thought. That they thought. Okay, listen. We are the children of Abraham, and so therefore we're covered by the covenant. And so therefore, it really doesn't matter how we act. I don't have really too much time to go into this this morning, but um, that, you know, Judaism was not completely of one nature. There were quite a few different groups within Judaism, and quite. Frankly, they're at each other's throats for the most part. There were the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were the chief priests, the high priests, the Levites, the noblemen, and they were in Jerusalem, and they had a a tight grip on the temple. Anything that happened on the temple, the Sadducees were pretty much in control of. And then there were the Pharisees, who actually were sort of against the Sadducees, trying to reform their apostasies, and they had gone so far to the other direction, they had created a whole new religion based on laws. They were legalists to the core. And then there were the zealots. The zealots were revolutionaries, terrorists by some people's account, and they were intent on ushering in the kingdom of heaven by violence. And then there were the Essenes. Some people think John the Baptist was an Essene. I don't think so. But they lived, they were like monks. They went out into the desert and lived a life of asceticism. Now, there were the Herodians who had already jumped into bed with the Romans. I mean, there's plenty of different kinds and groups within Judaism, but they all had one thing in common. They all said, we are the children of Abraham. They all looked to Abraham as their fathers. by the way, so do the Muslims, as their patriarchs. And so they were were united in that belief. Now, there's something that I learned. Actually, when I preached on this, I don't know how many years ago it was, uh, this same passage, I told you that Matthew and Luke are very close. When I preached on the Matthew version of this, I made a discovery that I had never known before. If you've ever gone through church history with me, especially the, the history of the Reformation, you know that I am enthralled with the whole idea of indulgences and the whole idea of what was known as the treasury of merit because the treasury of merit said that when saints die and they have more merit than they need to get into heaven well it all goes into this great treasury and of course the pope has the keys and the way that the pope would release that that merit was through indulgences and it was indulgences that made Martin Luther so furious that he nailed those 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church and the reformation began. Well, I was always under the impression that indulgences and the, and the treasury of merit was a product of medieval Roman Catholicism. But actually it wasn't. It actually started back during this period of time. In the intertestamental period of time, the rabbis were writing that Abraham was so good and the other patriarchs, Isaac and and Jacob and the the leaders of the 12 tribes, they were so good they had more merit than anyone needed. So therefore, like an umbrella, it covered all of them. And they were all going to go to God's heaven because they were all the children of Abraham. They come out to be baptized as the children of Abraham. And John the Baptist says, you're not the children of Abraham. You're the sons and daughters of Satan. And you need a Savior. Again, trying to save their souls. Now, uh, it brings out a very serious danger as far as the people were concerned. And that was the danger of entitlement. Entitlement. And I think we should spend a little bit of time on entitlement this morning, brothers and sisters, because you and I live in the most entitled country on the face of the planet. We are entitled by nature. And probably more so than people who have lived throughout history. And so therefore, we need to understand the dangers of entitlement now, you can understand to a degree why they thought this. For, because they were misinterpreting the Old Testament. They were misinterpreting the covenant with Abraham. For instance, back in Daniel 7. Now we know Daniel 7 to be an amazing picture of the ascension and coronation of Jesus Christ. But the Jews didn't know this and so they denied it and they thought they were the ones that Daniel was talking about. When he says the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. They said that's us. This is our kingdom. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize why John the Baptist is being so coarse with them? They're not coming out to be baptized. They're not coming out to repent. They're not coming out to confess their sins and say, "We need a savior." They're coming out to claim their kingdom. We are God's people. This is our kingdom. If you say you're ushering in the kingdom of heaven, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is what John the Baptist was teaching, then we are here to claim our kingdom. We are the entitled. It is ours. John the Baptist says, no, it's not. Unfortunately, you are not the sons of Abraham. And he goes on to say that that God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from these very stones. Boy, what a picture that is. I'll remind you what we talked about last week a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the ways of the Lord, make the paths crooked. I mean, make the crooked paths straight and fill in the, blank, the, the low places and knock down the high places because a highway needs to be built because the Lord of, of Lords is coming. And he is bringing a massive number of people with him from every walk of life, from every language, ethnicity, race, culture. He's bringing an entire new group of people and he's going to raise up sons of Abraham, spiritual sons and daughters of Abraham from this rabble, this Gentile world that we live in. And, of course, that's exactly what happened. That was a huge a huge uh, um, uh, awakening, if you will, for the Jews of those days. But nonetheless, th- th- this is what, what happens, and this is what John the Baptist is saying. And he goes on. Now, in the last verse, he, he, he puts this in sort of a time urgency um, sort of way. Look at what he says. He says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Well, the tree that he's talking about is the family tree of the crowd. The family tree, because that's what they're saying. We are the sons of Abraham, and our family tree will live forever. And John gives us this jolting image and the image is simply this: it's of a, an orchard or a vineyard or an olive grove, a, and, and in it, every tree that is in that. Notice, however, that Luke does use trees in the in the. Plural, but I'm just going to use one in this illustration. Every tree's bearing fruit. They're filled with fruit and, and it's a luscious place. But right in the middle of the orchard, there's this old, beat up, uh, wretched looking tree. It's not bearing any. It's got a couple of leaves on it, more dead wood than live wood. And the owner of the, uh, of the orchard is there with an axe getting ready to take the tree down. And the Jews say, you can't take that tree down. This is the father of all these trees. This tree was here before any of these other trees were. This tree has the right to stay. And the owner of the vineyard says no. Or the orchard says no. I'm sorry. This this is not a a home for aging trees. This is a place where fruit is born. And, and, And any tree that is not bearing fruit. I don't care how long they've been here. Any tree that is not bearing fruit is cut down. what we do with dry wood is throw it into the fire. And this tree, I have given more chance. I'm, for years, I've let it exist, and I've tried to fertilize it, and I've tried to nurture it, and I have warned it that unless it starts building fruit, there is literally going to be, I mean, delivering fruit, is going, there's going to be hell to pay. And they have ignored me. The tree has ignored me. So guess what? The tree's coming down, and it will be thrown into the fire. Now, I learned something about this image just this week. I hadn't known it before. I always had in my mind that image I just shared with you. But this gnarled old tree, you know, with all these big roots that are above ground, you know. And when it says that the axe is at the foot of the the root of the tree, I I see the tree as a complete tree, and and the owner just getting ready to bring the axe back. But actually, that's not the image. The word "root" doesn't mean roots; it means core. It means heart. And the image is this. Tree's already almost gone. The outer edges have already been hewn away. And now that dead heart is exposed, the very core of it. A couple of more well placed swings, and that tree topples. That's what the even now means. Even now, there is an urgency to this. The axe is at the root of the tree. And the tree is about to be taken down and thrown into the fire. And the same will be done with any tree in this orchard that does not bear fruit. Once again, let me tell you, let me just try to emphasize this. I know that this is harsh. I know this is abrasive. I know it's offensive to some people. I know that probably half the audience online is already closed out. I know that. But I also know that it is being presented to you for a reason. And the reason it is not that that's where it ends. The reason is so that you will turn to Christ, realize you need a Savior, realize you can't save yourself. Realize that God sent His Son here for a reason, for your salvation. And don't think that this is some Old Testament prophet that needs to be thrown out with the Old Testament prophecies because Jesus said exactly the same thing. Almost word for word in Matthew 25. I'm sorry, Matthew um, 7. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The exact same imagery that John the Baptist gives us. And we know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus came to save. And so, therefore, the whole purpose of John the Baptist's message, the whole purpose of Jesus' message, and the whole purpose of my message is for your eternal salvation. So that your soul will be together with my soul and those who know Jesus Christ for an eternity in heaven. That's what John wants. He wants you to be with him in heaven. And towards that end, if he offends you and steps on your toes, so be it. Because he really would rather you see the truth. Which leads me to sort of a question of that truth. Why do people not listen? Why do you not listen? Why have you heard this over and over again from different sources and why does it bounce off of you as if it was just you were made of Teflon? Why? What is there that causes this not to be expressed? It is the truth of God. Now, let let, let me just reiterate this, okay? I believe with my entire heart, every fiber that is within my body that this is the divine inspired word of God, infallible and inerrant. And in that, it makes... Strong warnings. Let me just give it to you in summation, not coming from John the Baptist, but else otherwise. Writer of Hebrews says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Jesus says in Matthew 25, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep and the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. Skipping around, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. Why don't you? Why doesn't that lead you to repentance? Why doesn't that convince you of how desperately you need a Savior? Why do you insist upon continuing on in your own self centered, self aggrandizing, self fulfilling salvation or, or, or righteousness? Well, let me, let me give you three reasons, and there are thousands. But let me just give you some quick ones here. I'm reading an old book. I've been reading it for a long time. It is a a delightful book. It's written uh, about the same time that Bunyan wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And, and, And it is called Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices. And it's an old Puritan who goes one by one, and he talks about the devices of the enemy. That's just the methodology, the way that Satan works. And he shows you this is what he does, and here's some remedies to that when that happens. So I want to give this to you sort of in the same context. I want to show you I'm going to focus on what the enemy does to us to keep you from listening to these words and some of the remedies of them. First device, Satan knows something about us as human beings. We categorize. Even the most disorganized person categorizes. We categorize truths. We categorize people. We categorize things that we hear. It's just kind of like a man in the old-timey uh, mail post office box that's sorting through letters and he throws a letter in a different box depending on who it's addressed to. We do that in our minds and we do it with truth. We, we have certain mechanisms. We have certain um, categories that we establish. And if something meets that category, we don't even have to listen to it. We simply throw the letter in that box. And you know exactly what I mean. Because every single one of you has picked up the telephone. There's somebody on the other end, and you know what they're there for, don't you? They want to sell you something, right? And so you immediately categorize. You don't listen to a word they say. I'm not interested in anything this person has to say. I just want to get off the phone, and it takes me a long time. And finally, I just hang up the phone because they're not going to shut up. I have categorized the entire conversation. There might be something wonderful that they were going to end with, but I'm not going to listen to it because I categorized them. We all have categories, brothers and sisters, when we hear sermons or messages like this. We have the that's a too abrasive category. We have that I don't like his personality category. We have the hellfire and brimstone preacher category. We have the I don't believe in absolute truth and you're speaking about absolute truth category. And what we do... When 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 we hear these unalterable, unquestionable truths that God says so that we will be saved, we categorize them. And Satan knows it. He knows it so well. We don't even listen to them. We just mark it off. Well, I've already heard that. Some of you categorize it because you say, I've been in church since I was a baby. I know all this stuff. I don't need to hear any more about that. I am absolutely saved. I walked the aisle when I was nine years old and I said a prayer. I was baptized when I was a kid, and so therefore I'm saved. I don't need to hear any more about this. I'm just going to throw it in that category. So the remedy to that device, brothers and sisters, is to listen. Oh, if you would only listen if you could only hear with those ears of yours, if you would only pay attention, if you would only rationally consider what the argument that is being laid before you, if you would listen to what the Word of God is saying, then you would know this is really important stuff because I will face this judgment one day or else John the Baptist and Jesus and the Bible and God all liars. So remedy number one is to open up your ears and open up your heart and open up your eyes to listen. Device number two that Satan uses is to undermine the source, to undermine the authority of Scripture. Everything I have told you this morning and labeled it as absolute truth comes from the authority of the scripture. If this is a fairy tale, then nothing I just told you is true. If this is undermined, if this is not authoritative, and guess what? If it's not inerrant and infallible. You see, the Bible's not like any other book. You can't just pick and choose. You can't just say, I'll take this and I'll throw that out. Because the Bible makes claims. It, it says things. It says, Jesus, I'm the son of God. I will be raised from the dead. It says that if you believe in me and trust in me, I will forgive your sins. That I came from God and I'm going back to God. It makes audacious claims. You can't separate that out and say, well, I, I believe in some of what he says, but I don't believe in other things that he says. That undermines the, 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 the truth of everything that I've said. Our daughter Ashley is right now, actually, this whole week um, in Texas teaching a seminar in a Christian organization. And she was teaching a seminar on finding our identity in Christ. She had 95 scriptural verses to talk about finding our identity in Christ from Genesis. And she was on Ephesians, and a man stopped her, stood up, 70 years old, the head chaplain of the operation, and said, you're theologically unsound, you're teaching us heresies, and you're making an idol out of the Bible because you're claiming that it is absolute truth when it's not. You see, that's all you got to do. Everything she had said, every statement that she had made, just came crashing to the floor. Because all you got to do is have one single person that undermines Scripture, and all of a sudden, none of this makes any sense. So the devil knows exactly where to go. He undermines Scripture. Oh yeah, you can pick and choose. Well, actually, no, you can't. Way beyond the the context or the content of the time that I have in this sermon to prove the authenticity of scripture if you need to actually talk about that I'd be more than happy to schedule some time and go over that conversation with you but you know something there's a thing about the authenticity of scripture and that is that if it is not the infallible divinely inspired word of God in every single aspect then it is nothing Jesus is a liar John the Baptist is a liar. God is a liar. And you are left with abject atheism as far as the the God of the Bible is concerned. And you're left being a cosmic accident with no past, no future, and absolutely no purpose or meaning in this world. That's why the authority of Scripture is so important. Learn about it. Learn about it. How many times it 's been attacked and how it' stood up to each and every one of them. Third and last device of Satan. it 's a real simple one. it 's real easy, but it is so effective. Wish hell away. <laughs> Wish judgment away. Ah, I find it reprehensible the idea of hell. Even though Jesus talks about it more than anyone else. John the Baptist talks about it. Peter, James, John, um, the writer of Hebrews. Everyone talks about the fact that we are going to a time of judgment. There will be judgment. There is retribution. And yet, just wish it away because we find it reprehensible. If you don't believe in it, then just replace it with annihilation. I don't know about you, but annihilation doesn't bother me. I mean, I love life. I love this world. I Love the nature that is around me. But guess what? Life's hard. Especially this last year and a half. It's been hard. It's been ugly. You know, this, this, this is a time of trials and suffering and misery and death. The prospect of pushing up daisies for eternity and returning to dust is not entirely a bad one. Going to hell is. Eternal retribution is. Standing before the judgment seat of God is. And so, if you just kind of wish hell away like it wasn't there anymore, then what do you have to fear? Or, or what's your impetus? What's your reason <laughs> for turning and accepting a Savior? You see how easy it is for Satan's devices to undermine one of the most important aspects of what Scripture teaches. And it has certainly had an effect on churches today. So, let me leave you with this. Let me leave you with the positive side of this. The reason for all of these, I'm just going to repeat what I've said. The reason for this and the reason for this morning is is not to drive you away from Christianity. Some of you are going to run out of there and you say, I'm never going back to that church again. Man, oh man, that was the most negative morning I've ever spent. Well, it may be, but that's not my purpose. My reason is not that. My reason is to bring you face to face with the reality that gets covered over in a world that doesn't like to think of those kinds of things and people don't warn you about it anymore. And so you don't think about it and you have to consider that and repent from that sin and turn to Christ in order to be saved. If the devil can keep you from repenting, well, he's got you where he wants you. So the whole purpose of this is salvation. The whole purpose of this is you'll see the reason that Jesus came to save you. The whole purpose of this, you will realize that would reason that God had to send His very Son to the cross because it was just that serious, it is just that unfixable by you or by me, that the only way to salvation is through Christ. Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Peter told the Sanhedrin, there is no other name under heaven by which men are saved but the... Name of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who believes in me will never die. And he says to Martha, meaning to all of you, Do you believe that? Do you believe that salvation can be found in Jesus and Jesus alone? Because it can, and he will, if you will only listen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we recognize, because you have made it clear to us, why? why you, you, you have these abrasive prophets who come out and, and, and preach hellfire and brimstone. We, we realize it. It's because the threat is just that real. And oh, it is so washed away by our culture. In fact, I know that it, the things that I've said today are almost labeled as hate speech, that they are totally politically incorrect, and yet they are your truth from your word. So dear Lord, I pray that the words have hit home as only your spirit can make them hit home. We give you all the glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.